This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, Roland Vandermeer. Hello and welcome to Bay Area Ventures, coming to you live from the campus of Wharton here in San Francisco. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, investor, venture capitalist, and operator of assets that really count. And in today's show, we'll be talking about money that matters, which is really about the people and the the investors that are making a difference, that are putting their money to work on the problems of the world as we see them coming at us today. We're really fortunate today for joining me in the first hour is Paul Herman, founder and CEO of HIP Investor, HIP standing for Human Impact and Profit Investor, which licenses over 120,000 impact investment ratings through stocks, bonds, funds, investors, and investment advisors. He's a globally recognized leader in investing to pursue positive impact and profit. In the second hour, I'll be speaking to David Chen, the founder and chairman of Equilibrium Capital, an investment firm focused on sustainably driven real assets and investment opportunities across real estate, agriculture, water, waste, and energy. Anyway, here we are live. And if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to call. We're always open. We can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Anyway, I'm back here, and I'm thrilled to welcome my first guest here. He joins me in the studio, Paul Herman, founder of Hip Investor, 12 years ago. Sorry, for 12 years now, I think you've been at it, and I'm really impressed by your background. We, I think we've talked in the past. I was really excited to have you join here because that's, you're one of the firms I've been tracking for a long time because I think you recognized early on if we don't track what matters, nothing will get done. So, Paul, why don't you give us a little bit of background, first of all, of Hip Investor, maybe for a few minutes just to kind of understand that. We can ask a little bit out and then a little more about your background, how you devise this and why you came up with Hip Investor. Sure. Happy to, Roland, and uh, delightful to be here, especially on the Wharton campus, since I'm a Wharton alum from 1989. Um, HIP uh, stands for Human Impact and Profit, um, and human impact includes people, planet, and trust. And these are factors that we all intuitively know create value uh, and reduce future risk when we invest in people or invest in the planet or invest in trust. Um, And it turns out that it's actually true. You actually can generate stronger, more resilient financial returns um, by investing in the stocks, bonds, real estate, uh, and other investments um, that prioritize people and prioritize the planet and prioritize trust. So we based our whole philosophy on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So how do we solve the problems of health and wealth and earth and equality and trust uh, for people? And we've created essentially a 100-point rating system that rates every investment on its net positive or net negative impact on society. So we like to say 100 is like utopia. And zero is like dystopia. So things like coal are closer to, you know, coal energy are closer to dystopia. Um, and uh, things like healthcare and biotech are closer to uh, utopia. So every one of us has the ability to invest uh, our own money uh, in our everyday portfolios, in our 401ks. Uh, if you have an investment advisor or a fund manager working for you, we all have the ability to vote with our money as well as vote with our time. So it's not only where we work uh, and how we vote, it's how we shop 
and how we invest. So that's what we've built at Hip Investor over the past now 13 years is um, the ability to invest for uh, higher impact and to achieve human impact and profit, or we like to call it Hip. Well, let's let's go through that a little bit. And by the way, you also wrote a book, I think, "The Hip Investor: Making Big, Bigger Profits, Building a Better World." Is that it? Yes, and that was uh, this is the nine year anniversary of the book. So Wiley uh, published it. It's used in uh, twenty eight different universities around the world, uh, inclu- uh, uh, including Stanford and Berkeley. I've taught at Thammasat University in Thailand. Um, I also teach sustainable finance uh, at the Presidio Graduate School. Um, Dave Chen, who's coming on later, has pulled together the 150 people around the world who teach sustainable finance. I'm part of that group. And um, yeah, so the HIP book, um, the HIP investor book, is intended to be a how-to guide that anybody can read. It has very little buzzwords. Um, And it really uh, is meant to say, what can I do to focus on investments that uh, build a better world and by doing so end up uh, having the potential to make more money? at less risk at the same time. So let's talk about why again, because this is really important to, I think, our audience has to understand and learn and uh, and grow and appreciate what's really going on here. So the world is a a difficult, challenging place right now. We think the economy is doing great and all this wonderful stuff we hear about economy and jobs and all that stuff. Yet if you listen to the other side of the equation, the world is not doing well, okay? We see what's going on with climate change and I don't care what side of the equation you're on, it is changing rapidly, okay? And we can make an impact, regardless of what you think, we do make an impact. Um, and we have to change significantly and adapt, okay? That's our job here. So the first thing I'd like to say is how do you, with HIP Investor, or these rating systems, can you help companies make a change and make an impact? Yeah, great uh, question, and uh, it's totally implementable if we all decide to do it. So many of us have heard CEOs say people are our most important asset, and um, and usually when you tell an audience, do you think that CEOs really believe that people are their most important asset? People laugh or giggle, or they say, no, they don't. And the reason why they don't is our financial and accounting systems are based on people as a cost. Uh, and so, but if we ask ourselves... Uh, just like our house or our car, are you an appreciating asset or depreciating assets? Most of us like to think that we're appreciating assets. And to do that, um, we actually need to invest in people. We need to invest to train people, to train the skills of people. We need to um, uh, give people time off to spend with their newborn kids, um, which many retailers now are finding out that when you actually do create in this full employment uh, economy, more time for people to um, spend with with their family uh, while also doing their job, they get higher productivity. So, And you actually can um, calculate the value of people as an asset. It doesn't mean that we own people. It's not meant to uh, bring back slavery. What it's meant to say is just as uh, Boeing and other airline companies lease airplanes, companies lease people. They lease the productive capacity of people. Um, And so the more you invest in people, it's actually not a cost or a training cost. It's actually an investment um, and a return on investment. So that's one big issue. So things we do at HIP are track employee satisfaction and employee engagement, as well as training. We track how is the CEO paid relative to everybody else. And what we find is when a CEO is paid more than 400 times the average worker, 400, 500, 1,000 times, it ends up kind of like a... um uh, kind, of, kind of like a fiefdom. And that sends a negative morale charge through the whole organization. People are 
totally um, disappointed and they don't put forth their best efforts. Whereas the companies who do invest in people and even um, uh, the companies on the great place to work for list that Alex Edmonds, who used to be a professor at Wharton, uh, analyzed and uh, calculated the financial return relative to risk of the great places to work. Uh, as a portfolio, they outperform the market. They have up to twice the return uh, at the same or less risk. Um, and Alex Edmonds has even taken this globally and showing that in most countries around the world, companies who invest in people get a positive return on their investment and shareholders make more money. And the interesting thing about that is in most countries around the world, except two, it's uh, frequently the case where you make more money by investing in people. The place where that doesn't happen all the time is Germany and Denmark. And that's because workers have more um, power in those environments. Uh, and there's workers on the board of German auto companies. Um, and in Denmark, there's strong uh, worker collaboratives. Um, so in the U.S. and in most uh, of the investable markets, though, the benefits of investing in people flow to investors. And it's something you can feel good about. And, and because the, I really love talking about uh, calling out CEOs who say people as an asset because to disagree that people aren't an asset then paints them into a corner that, oh, you're a jerk. You're a jerk if you don't believe I'm an asset. <laughs> you think I'm just a cost to be squeezed. That's so. a tough interview question, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that sounds marvelous. So you're saying there's a real correlation between investing in people and productivity. And it's more than just good benefit plans. We're not talking about just, I have a great medical plan. I have a great dental plan. I'm really happy. It's not that. It, that helps, but it's empowering, engaging people. Because at the end of the day, um, how do you make customers happy? You make customers happy when employees are happy, when employees take care of customers. And who invents products? The robots don't yet invent products. Artificial intelligence don't yet invent products. People invent products. So the most innovative companies um, invest in their people. Think of it as a return on investment from a financial point of view at the CEO, CFO's office, CEO office at the board. Um, and what we what we also find from a diversity perspective, there's an academic paper from North Carolina State that has come out that said companies with the highest diversity of people actually produce twice as many patents as companies that have less diversity. Group think. Group think, similar think, uh, right. homogenous thinking. And right. so there's an actual value to having an equal number of women and men, a proportional ethnic distribution, a proportional age distribution. One thing most companies around the world don't have is age distribution at the board level. And they think of that of like, well, our board is our investors, our board um, is wisdom. But uh, if you're running a company that caters to kids, you should have kids on the board. Um, and because those are the ones making the purchases or recommending the purchases. Or women who make half the purchases and influence 80% of the purchases, like in automobiles, Women are not 80% of the boards of automotive companies. So you have Mary Barra running General Motors. Mm. But when you look at the boards of these companies, they're not reflective of the customers who buy, the employees who work there, um, stakeholders, uh, supply chain, labor in the supply chain, especially if you're uh, buying from all around the world, as well as there's very few stakeholders of the environment or trust. Mm -hmm. So people, not only the workers, but the managers, the executive suite, the board boards of directors, those are all essential inputs to the equation. And so you wouldn't expect a you know, a uh, athletic team that doesn't hire the best talent to win the championship. But unless you use that same thinking for your own company, 
um, then you're not going to get the best results. So do you, you track those actual metrics that you just went through? I mean, how many of your metrics are people related like that in the hip? About a third of the metrics are people related. A third wow. to uh, almost half of the metrics are people related. So everything from employee satisfaction and employee engagement. What's the employee turnover? Then there's things like job safety. So one of my um, favorite uh, stories about not only money that matters, but metrics that matter, are is Paul O'Neill, who at one point, um, uh, before he was Secretary of the Treasury, uh, was the head of Alcoa. And Alcoa had a lot of safety issues. There were deaths and injuries on the job. Mm. And, uh, and so back before Alcoa became uh, the, you know, the, the even successful company that it was, he came to the board and he said, listen, we have have one metric to focus on, and it is not finance. It is not profit. It is safety. So I'm going to change all the management systems of the whole company to just focus on workers, safety, and ensuring we have no deaths and as few injuries as possible. The board was not happy about this, but he, they, he said, well, listen, do you want me to be the CEO or not? Um, so the board went with it, and over the next 10 years, uh, Alcoa grew by uh, an order of magnitude to be 10 times bigger because wow. he focused on the people. He created the trust. And when employees see that from the leadership, then they're more naturally will produce and be productive and innovative and engaged. So safety in this case meant taking care of your people, and that's how they took it, and therefore they perform better, et cetera. Physical safety, emotional seems safety. seems amazing. Yeah. It seems obvious and amazing at the same time. Things our moms taught us. So listen to mom, invest like your mom, and invest invest in people and invest in the planet and invest in trust. Okay. So a third of your metrics are, are people-based, okay? So the other two-thirds are what? And uh, how do you get this data, by the way, also the, the follow-on question to that? Yeah. So the good news is we live in an age of big data. So there's lots of sources of information. Some of it is the company itself. Um, and companies are actually producing this information on people and on environment and energy and The water. ones who want to or all of them? Well, what started about um, 20 years ago was a nonprofit called the Carbon Disclosure Project started about 20 years ago. And at the beginning, there were a couple of hundred companies that voluntarily It's the UK, right? UK-based. Started in the UK. Yep. Also has a US uh, uh, and uh, multiple country operations today. Um, today, more almost 5,000 companies voluntarily report their carbon emissions. And you think it's pretty accurate? I looked at the database. It's quite amazing, actually. It's an excellent database. And here's the thing uh, is companies do, are at risk if they lie. Um, so, you know, when we catch okay. companies lying, when Volkswagen, you know, cheated on its emissions. They're liable. They are liable and the stock dropped 35% on the first day. Um, you know, and so there's there's a downside to lying. So currently the culture of companies is if... Um, if I'm going to report something, I'm generally going to report it accurately. And if I put it out there like Coca-Cola does for its water metric, so if somebody is out there drinking a unit of Coca-Cola or you know other Coca uh, Sprite or other Coca-Cola products, there's actually more than one can of water in that can of soda. There's actually three cans of water that it takes to make that one can of soda. And so that's yeah. all the raw materials and the processing and the plastics that go into uh, producing and delivering that. So when, when there was a drought in the southeast United States uh, in, in the, the mid-2005, uh, 2006, Coca-Cola, uh, some of Coca-Cola's plants uh, could not produce. 
And so that's when the polar bear for Coca-Cola got invented, was to help raise awareness about water and water scarcity. And they went public about their units of water per unit of product, per unit of soda. And that started just about at three units of water per unit of soda. And it's worked its way down to two over 10 years. So it's cut 33% uh, about over a decade. Now, it could be cut even more, like you want to use just enough water to have in the product. And so they'll continue to do that. So that's the state that we're in now with um, energy, with emissions, with waste. Um, so another comparison we like to talk about is Coca-Cola versus Pepsi. Pepsi is a half-food, half-beverage company, and Coca-Cola is primarily beverage company. Um, Pepsi uses uh, Pepsi uh, uses water even at a lower intensity than Coke, um, and so that intensity is even half the intensity of Coke. And Pepsi uh, reuses about ninety three percent of its materials. So all of these things reduce the primary cost of the input. Mm-hmm. It reduces the price risk when there's a shock to the system. So if oil prices or water prices were to shoot up, using less means you have less cost risk. Right. And then that all flows into gross margins and profit margins, and that all flows to then profits available for shareholders or employees or other stakeholders. So when you walk all this through, and this is what I did 13 years ago when I started HIP, um, after working at McKinsey and working at Ashoka and uh, working for the founder of eBay, Pyramidiar, uh, we took all these factors that were available information from business, from nonprofits like Carbon Disclosure Project, from the government like OSHA and EPA, uh, from third-party sites that collect this information, and from academic studies like University of Michigan has the American Customer Satisfaction. So, so you had to go out there and actually find these sources of data that were available, create them if not, source the companies. Uh, that's that's pretty remarkable, a lot of work to get that done. And, and that was an audacious plan to kind of do that and think there was a business in doing that, which is remarkable. Anyway, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer. I'm speaking with Professor Paul Herman, founder and CEO of Hip, Digital, of Hip Investor, a globally recognized leader in rating impact-themed investment portfolios. If you have any questions, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We were just talking about how you created all this data. So literally from scratch, you had to think, what sources, what could I do? Even though you had this idea of 100, you probably had a third of those, you know, available to you. And then you have to start adding them on as they built on. Yeah. And this is typical entrepreneurial problem solving. Uh, There's what we would love to have available, which is everything. Yeah. That was, you know, that's still not available today even. Um, And the SEC is a contributor to restricting that. um, And why do you think that is? You know, this is, um, I will, uh, one of my fellow McKinsey alums said this to me. He said, thank you for doing all the work that you do. We live in a corrupt society. Thank you for helping it be more transparent, more performance-oriented, and more accountability-oriented. And that's really what uh, we're out to do. And what the SEC doesn't always do is make things more transparent so that we can compare performance on things that matter. So, um, so for example, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission has said that all material risks must be disclosed. So if you read a 10K of a company, many companies will re- reveal their climate risk. But what the SEC does not do um, is then mandate 
disclosure of carbon emissions for scope one, scope two, scope three, like what the company uses, what right. the energy they buy, how the customers use it. Um, and so even though they say all material risks must be disclosed um, and carbon is a material risk, the SEC is on the record of saying that A equals B and B equals C, but A does not equal C. And this is in, independent of this Trump era that we're in where every agency is getting <laughs> deregulated, so to speak, and becoming more industrial. It is accelerated under the Trump era, but um, oh. you know these are meaningful initiatives. The Obama administration did do this in 401ks. So Tom Perez, who was Secretary of Labor under President Obama, they did this with the legislation that controls 401ks called ERISA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they did up the uh, value of this type of meaningful people, a planet, and trust information into 401k choices and considerations. But that has been moderated uh, during the the Trump era. It hasn't been shut down, but it's been moderated. But the SEC actually enforcing, um, uh, calling out enforcing action, creating more meaningful information for investors. So just this past week, Roland, the London Stock Exchange is now calling oil and gas non-renewable energy. Wow, that's a big step. Yeah, because historically the S&P doesn't call the sector energy. They actually call it oil and gas. And I just heard that actually in The Hague, they just legalized the ability to take on climate uh, CEOs of energy companies who have gone against the climate and called it some horrific climate. Uh, crime at this point, right? It's, I mean, so the it's getting dialed up, and so you have, you know, uh, strong teen, uh, teenage girl heroes like Greta Thunberg in Sweden, um, and the coalition of the Extinction Rebellion, uh, kids who are going on strike every Friday now for almost a year, um, and now you have these language and vocabulary and definition shifts, like London Stock Exchange calling it non-renewable energy. Yeah, uh, Bloomberg has uh, classification systems that uh, all. Also split out renewable and non-renewable energy. There's a uh, nonprofit organization called SASB. Uh, so FASB is the Financial Accounting Standards Board. SASB is the Sustainability Accounting Standards Gene, Board. Gene, right? Gene is Yeah, and that, Gene yeah. was the um, uh, founder of that uh, with uh, Michael Bloomberg and Mary Shapiro, who used to run the right. uh, Beyond the SEC. So uh, and Prince Charles is leading the way in terms of being sustainable. And even in France and the Netherlands, there is a requirement now to do reporting on investments as to how they match the 17 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Mm-hmm. So no poverty and gender equality and right. sustainable cities. So the world is changing. The world is adapting. It's not adapting fast enough. We need to adapt faster and with more intensity. Um, and so some of the new metrics that we're looking at, which are really exciting, are things like science-based targets. So this is where a company like Stanley Black & Decker or Novo Nordisk or T-Mobile says, we're going to eliminate all of our carbon emissions by 2035, Mm -hmm. 2030, 2035. So in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to clip emissions, not 8% total, but like 8% per year. Right. Um, these are the companies that are going to survive. These are the companies that are, you know, valuing the inputs of raw materials, uh, understand that nature is a system and that, um, you know, it's funny that we're products of nature as people. Nature doesn't build systems where there's uh, one-way waste streams. Nature builds systems where somebody's waste is somebody else's food. Um, 
And somehow we've been, you know, innovative enough as humans to not learn that enough (laughs) and to not have a cradle to cradle or a systems based system. So um, so science based targets of let's set the targets not on what we think we can achieve, but what we need to survive. um, These are the companies who are going to be leaders. And so what we find at HIP over uh, now 13 years of doing this is when we take this 100 point rating on an investment. And we build a portfolio that uh, weights it higher for higher rated investments and weights it lower or even excludes lower rated investments. Those That portfolio of higher impact rated investments has a higher total shareholder return, a higher return on invested capital, a higher return on equity, basically a higher profit. And the companies that are destructive or extractive or dystopian, those companies have higher risk and uh, usually lower returns and sometimes even negative returns. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's we now have that information to make that choice. And have you done, I'm sure you've published many reports on this. I've seen some in the past, but the reports that show you both on the short-term, medium-term, long-term, now you've been around long enough to have a long-term report. What are the metrics? How much of a delta are we talking about? And what kind of, you know, I can talk about all these ratios, but let's not. Let's just talk about a change between the two portfolios. Sure, sure. Yeah, so we'll talk about it a couple of different ways. So, um, uh, yeah, so in addition to doing ratings at Hip Investor, we have strategies. And these strategies uh, focus on the Hip ratings. So whereas uh, in finance, you're taught that the market knows everything and it's immediately efficient. Obviously, that's not true. Uh, I wish we taught more of that in finance, including at Wharton. Um, but investing is about future risk um, and, and looking towards the future. And many of our financial ratios look towards the past rather than the future. So, um, so what we found at HIP, and this has been validated by Harvard, uh, by Oxford, by BlackRock, the investment institute at BlackRock is portfolios of companies that prioritize people, planet, and trust um, end up being having the same or higher returns about two-thirds of the time. So uh, Morgan Stanley has done this too. Uh, and those portfolios that are higher environmental social governance metrics um, are lower risk about 90% of the time. So two-thirds of the time, higher return, 90% of the time, lower risk. As we know in finance, higher return, lower risk, both good, and when you get them together. So what Alex Edmonds found when he did this for Great Places to Work, and we have a strategy that uh, um, does this and then adds in the additional hip factors that he didn't track, is uh, what he found is that uh, companies who focused on the best, the created a best place, best place to work, ended up making another. Uh, if the average company was up ten percent, they'd make another four to six percent. So instead of making ten percent a year, you'd make fourteen to sixteen percent a year. Wow. Russell uh, did an analysis for this, and what they found was, uh, depending on the time period, they did one 10-year time period, where this type of approach could double the market return. Um, Now, you can't do this all the time, not every time period, not every portfolio, but these factors reduce future risk, they capture future value, they are inspiring people to do their best, and, uh, and they don't get sued. 
So one of the questions you started to ask was, you know, like, what are the top six things a company should focus on or what you could look at as an investor? Um, so obviously customer satisfaction, you need products that sell. Um, and we put it through a lens of, are you also solving a human, social, or environmental problem at the same time? Mm -hmm. So like Novo Nordisk, its mission is to like eliminate diabetes. And they actually truly are trying to eliminate diabetes, not stretch it out. And they say, when we've cured diabetes, we'll move on to the next condition. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an example. And those types of companies have higher revenue growth. So organic milk or now even oat milk or soy milk, those categories are growing at double, double digits, whereas other categories are growing at single digits. Right. Uh, revenue so you're growth. seeing that already impacting business. So yeah. you can grow your top line revenue. Things like Beyond Meats now are selling out and Impossible Burger is spreading through Burger King's chain. So uh, plant-based foods is part of the future. Um, uh, and it's actually a way that will help us reduce emissions and it'll help us reduce our heart disease. So there's just these easy things like think about your daily purchases, like buying a gallon of milk. So what I'd like to do is actually go through in, in the next part of our conversation is sure. go through all those kind of areas you think are the most interesting places to invest based on the sure. data you have and what you've seen, as well as talk about topically how that affects you as a consumer and a buyer of these things, too. It's sure. a really important. But we need to take a short break right now. I'm Roland Vandermeer. My guest this hour is Paul Herman, founder and CEO of Hip. Investor, a globally recognized leading rating theme impact investment portfolios. Stay with us as we continue our conversation, okay, about all these important metrics that will actually help make a better world as we become better investors. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. Welcome back to Bay Adventures on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, and this is my guest this hour is Paul Herman, founder and CEO of Hip Investor, a globally recognized leader in rating impact-themed investment portfolios. And when we left off, we were just about to talk about those themes that he thinks are really, really important to look at for an investor and where you might find more information on that. Why don't we just start right there? Sure. Well, uh, I mean, to make a better world, um, and this is why um, climate action is gaining more in um, the teenagers and the Gen Zers and the millennials are already living this lifestyle. Um, you know, they're thinking about what world they're going to live in, their kids are going to live in, their grandkids are going to live in. Um, so what... Way, I'm thinking about what world I'm going to live in the next 10 years, too, because the UN just stated in 10 to 12 years, if we don't turn this around, we are done Well, as a species. That's and, true. And Australia just said by 2050, we are done. <laughs> These are all pressing problems that are seemingly uh, unsolvable that uh, we as humanity have figured out ways to, to go beyond. Like back in the 13th century, a third of the population died from the plague, but we survived. Um, yeah. uh, we've been talking about overpopulation for 50 years now since Club of Rome in, uh, in 1970, um, but we you know, keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So, you know, which species right. is the idiot? <laughs> so I'm a long-term optimist and a short-term skeptic. And um, so what are opportunities to look more deeply into? Obviously, what we eat every day matters. So plant-based foods. Um, and it's interesting that, um, you know, the uh, Beyond Meat uh, and Impossible Burger are both... Um, you know, pressing forward. Here are some human nature challenges that we have. Uh, Mississippi has just passed a law 
that said you can't call a burger a burger unless it has uh, meat, not plants, but meat. No. Yes. Oh, yes. Just sad. like North Carolina had passed a law that sea rise could only be arithmetic. It couldn't be exponential. So the North Carolina's legislature has banned sea level rise from North Carolina. Um, these are the human nature challenges that we have to get over and to educate everybody and uh, get everybody. <laughs> that one I, I'm just blown away by. <laughs> it is exponential, by the way, everybody. It's a dynamic system and it's highly unstable and it's exponential. Right. So what we eat matters. Um, and so any form of plant-based food is um, typically not only better for your body, reduces heart disease, which is one of the top things that kill people uh, in Western, but now in developing economies as well. Um, but it's also better emissions-wise. And so when we think like nature, instead of uh, what, you know, we, you know, when we mimic nature, biomimicry, like Janine Benius has written about, um, that is uh, more compelling. So Stonyfield yogurt, once it did a carbon footprint of what it fed its cows to how it delivers its yogurt, found that when cows eat grass, which is what they're supposed to eat, and not eat corn, which is what we feed them in the U.S., <clears throat> there's lower methane that gets burped or farted out of the cow. So Stonyfield did that and reduced its carbon footprint, but also made it healthier for us and healthier for the cows. And you're growing grass, which sequesters more carbon and soil. It's a full system. We right. just have to learn from the four billion years of nature that have come. Great through. little movie, by the way. The Biggest Little Farm. There's a documentary one con film festival. Amazing about the drama of a farm and how it integrates. It's a permaculture situation. It's an amazing movie. There's lots to learn um, and, to, and to build in these, like, whose waste is somebody else's food? Right. Um, you know, why do they call it the dung beetle? Because it eats the elephant poop. And so, and it lives off of that. So there are these systems of designing end-to-end -end systems. So that's one. Two, how we produce energy. So my first job after graduating Wharton was in the McKinsey energy practice. Not something I expected, but totally eye-opening. And uh, I was in, uh, part of the team that did the annual oil outlook, who was producing oil and from where. And at no point in that um, uh, report did we talk about carbon emissions in 1989 or 90 or 91 and this oil outlook. It was who's producing, who's buying, what are the prices. Um, today, McKinsey is you know focused on that. But we need to think through the ripple effects of all of our choices. So um, energy and how it gets produced um, – you know, uh, when politicians say, oh, what happens when the wind stops, your TV is going to go off? That's not the right way to frame our solutions. So Elon Musk essentially put in a test battery in South Australia, which had the energy go out um, and said um, he'll do it in 100 days or less uh, or it'll be free. And so there's a race to producing um, new forms of energy, energy plus storage, solar plus storage, wind plus storage. Um, and we still haven't gotten the lights back on in Puerto Rico after the hurricane hit. And there's more hurricanes coming, not only for Puerto Rico, but for Texas and Florida. So how we produce energy is an essential one. That includes things like smart buildings. So energy efficiency, um, water efficiency, um, I saw recently that there's a new uh, city regulation that said no glass buildings. That's not the most helpful regulation. The regulation should be how to produce a net zero energy and emissions building, no matter the technology. Did someone pass that no glass buildings? Yes. No. Yes. yes. Yeah. And so this is where policy is really important to have policy based on outcomes, not policy based on 
um, pseudoscience inputs or pseudoscience or right so um so one of our clients is a company called stoke um stok they're based here in san francisco they work on like the you know new or retrofitted buildings for high-tech companies and the like and um uh and inside their company you know they align themselves to their 401k by saying listen we're about creating a fossil free world our 401k should be a fossil free world and also a gun-free world and a palm oil-free world. So, um, and I had the opportunity to meet the CEO of United Airlines um, while giving a panel on ESG to boards of directors. And um, and I mentioned the 401k as a tool to shift the you know shift action on sustainability. Uh, and he said, "Oh, I hadn't thought about that. That's a great way to do it." So each of us, where we work, whether it be a small or mid-sized company, which is easier to shift your 401k if you talk to your boss, or a large company like the 7,000 people who signed the petition at Amazon to say we're not doing enough for climate action, it's up to us to, to convert that into action. Um, so what we eat, plant-based foods, um, how we produce energy, how we get around. So basically car transport needs to be electrified and it needs to be as either mass transit as possible or human energy as possible. So there's bike share programs here in San Francisco that uh, Ford and now Lyft are the sponsors of in New York, their city bike. But in Boston, uh, when I was just there, the sponsors of the bike share program are Blue Shield, the healthcare insurance company and Bar Foundation, which is a healthcare focused uh, uh, foundation. That's wonderful. And so these are multi, you know, we need to start thinking multi-sector. We can't just think business, social, government anymore. We need to think about how to integrate all sectors to solve our multi-sector problems with multi-sector solutions. So if I wanted to research or figure out if I'm one of our audience listening members here, would would um, I go to your site, which is, I think, hipinvestor.com. Hip yep. Go there, and I would find some information there that I could help figure out how I want to look at my portfolio? Yeah, so if you go to hipinvestor.com, we, uh, uh, we have the Hip Investor book, which you can read. That's a textbook uh, in 28 universities around the world. It's also an audio book uh, if you like to listen in your car while you exercise or an e-book if you want to put it on your mobile device. Um, so that's been out for nine years now. So that's helped you know train the next generation on um, how to invest to do good and uh, pursue making money. Um, there's the Hip Investor site. So we have both a portal of the investment ratings mm -hmm. on the Hip Investor site uh, where we cover um, uh, uh, stocks and bonds, uh, including muni bonds. We're the, as of right now, we're the only rater of the impact of your muni bonds. Wow. Because uh, a lot of those green bonds weren't so high impact, were they? Well, one of the challenges with that, Roland, is that the green bonds uh, commit to investing the money in green projects. But after that, there's no rep forced reporting on whether they achieve their objectives or not. Huh. And there's no forced accountability for huh. that. So one of the other things the SEC could be helpful on would be if you're going to you know, launch a green bond, then what is the measurement of the energy, water, emissions, waste reductions that, you're, that you've proposed in this green bond? And can you report on it year after year? Uh, and you might even do it like Washington, D.C. just did with its wastewater bond. So in Washington D.C., when it uh, and today this is happening in D.C., there's uh, you know uh, traumatic rainstorms. Um, when that happens, the wastewater system can overflow. 
That means wastewater flows into the Potomac River and Chesapeake Bay. So they actually need infrastructure to truly drain the swamp. And so what the Washington, D.C. did in one of its uh, green bonds was to uh, do a Monte Carlo analysis of what are the potential savings of these wastewater pipes that mm-hmm. they're going to put in. And then if they exceeded those savings, there'd be a reward. And if they fell short of those savings, there'd be a penalty. Mm-hmm. This is the type of uh, smart financial systems right. that we need based on data, track results, be accountable to delivering those results. Wow. And, um, and so that's, that's what's needed. So at the HIP portal, you can see that for the schools and hospitals and cities and counties that you uh, might have in your portfolio, especially if you're looking for a tax-exempt portfolio. Um, and then we have a second site called cleanportfolios.com. And Clean Portfolios uh, is sort of a way to go and pick funds and uh, exchange-traded funds and mutual funds for your portfolio. And it shows you what the percentage of fossil fuels is in your portfolio yeah. or the gender equality score um, or the deforestation score of those funds and how you can package those together. So those are all put together by a group called As You Sow uh, and cleanmoney.us. And so at the cleanportfolios.com, that's something you could um, use with your 401k. You could go and pick something for your 401k or your IRA. So there's online tools like the HIP book, uh, the HIP investor site. We also have um, all the academic studies from Harvard and Oxford uh, that uh, show that this works, as well as links to reports from BlackRock um, uh, and Wharton and, and others that the overwhelming evidence shows that this is the right way to invest. It's a smarter way to invest. It can deliver stronger returns. It can reduce future risk. And so why wouldn't we do that and build the world that we want to live in? Um, So can I build a portfolio using your data? You can. You can. And how we think about the HIP ratings is that um, these are indicators of future risk and future value. Mm. And so when we um, either uh, manage people's money to, for these uh, for strategies or we work with advisors to build them model portfolios, uh, we also manage 401k model portfolios like I talked about with Stoke, um, we're using the HIP ratings. And we're using the metrics under it. We're looking at employees and customers. We're looking at carbon emissions and CEO pay. We're looking at board diversity and legal exposure. Right, the 100 measurements. So are there other investment firms that are using your ratings for their portfolios? Yes, there are. Are are they talking about it or they just do it clandestinely? uh, Well, so big companies uh, like using our ratings, uh, including, you know, big brand names that we all know and, and, you know, who manage, you know, trillion dollars or more. Um, and hedge funds use our ratings as well. We cannot say who's using them. That's their right. restriction on us. Right. But what I can tell you are um, we manage money for the Sierra Club Foundation. Mm-hmm. The Sierra Club Foundation is happy for us to, you know, to talk about how Sierra Club manage, manages uh, their funds to have a more sustainable portfolio. Um, we also work with uh, advisors like NIA Global Capital, which focuses on women investing and Silicon Private Wealth. Uh, and so they... <clears throat> They focus on how to implement these as advisors for their clients who are foundations and endowments. One other um, client who we have permission to talk about is Becker College. So Becker College is a, a small private college in Massachusetts. They've applied this to their endowment. 
Now, wow. oh, I'd love to say that Wharton and the Penn Endowment are managed in this more advanced, sustainable ESG way. <clears throat> None of the Ivy League universities uh, that we're aware of uh, are doing this in a, in a dramatic way. <laughs> but Becker College is, and Becker College is uh, very pleased with the stronger, more resilient portfolios um, to and manage. I, and I'm sure there are other colleges that would love to do that, too. And it, we can talk about Common Fund and all these other places that probably use it. This is this again is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio Sirius XM 132. I'm your host Roland Vandermeer and speaking with Paul Herman, founder and CEO of Hip Investor, a globally recognized leader in rating impact themed investing portfolios. If you have any questions, please give us a call at one eight four four Wharton, and that's one eight four nine four two seven eight six six. So colleges would be, I think, a prime target because the students have rebelled multiple times. Even here at Cal and other places where they have sit-ins because they're pissed about fossil fuel portfolios and and the like and other things in the past. In fact, apartheid was broken because investors backed off of investing because of that. So, so tell me, aren't colleges like a prime target for you to kind of get students all riled up to go after it? You would think that that would be a prime target, and that is a very difficult uh, thing to achieve. Really? So, um, unfortunately, um, colleges have tra- college endowments have trustees or management companies. Those trustees um, are not fully either informed, educated, or action-oriented yet on how to shift the future, um, uh, how to shift the allocations to mimic the future versus mimicking the past. And uh, as some of the listeners may know, uh, when you get a group of trustees together in an institutional portfolio, they like to talk about this thing called tracking error. And tracking error is how far away are you from the benchmark index and can you stay as close to the benchmark index as possible? And tracking error is actually a um, quantitative measurement of historical risk, right. not future risk, historical right. risk. And so people care whether we're tracking to the historical risk of a economy that's built on carbon, that treats people not as assets, and that has uh, companies being sued for being extractive and dysfunctional and dystopian. And so we have to think beyond the benchmark, and we have to think about the future that we're going to live in. And so this is where companies like um, Green Alpha um, uh, has something called the Next Economy Fund. Um, and Etho Capital has an Etho ETF. And these are uh, fund strategies that say, what's the world going to look like in 20 to 40 years? And let's start investing for the future, which is what every financial disclosure says. Past results are not indicative of future performance. But, um, but when people look at fund performance, they say, oh, what did you do for me the past one year, three year, five years? Now, nobody can predict the future, but wouldn't we, don't you think it's smarter to try and position your portfolio to mimic the future or position for the future than uh, to replicate the past, which is very, you know, it's high risk. We can't burn fossil fuels like we did. We can't treat people like we have uh, with income inequality and gender inequality. Um, we need to be more transparent, more performance-oriented, more accountable. So, so we can vote every day with where we work, uh, including our 401k with 
um, how we vote uh, and to vote for people who believe in climate change and not believe that it's uh, a arithmetic sea rise. Uh, with how we shop, what we buy in the store actually matters. If, you know, uh, every day uh, due to computers, CEOs see what the daily revenue is. So when you make a different buying decision, that is registering uh, yeah. in the financial offices of, of companies. Have you gone to firms like with Motif, you know, where you can design your own portfolio and buy themes? Are they using you as a data source? To uh, They are not, but we're working with open investment. Okay. And so at Open Invest yeah. for a hundred dollars or more, you can yeah. invest in a portfolio. So that's right. linked from the hip site if people that's, want to check that out. That's great. That's great. And other online wealth advisors, you know, there are quite a few of them starting up. Are they using? I mean, your tool would be brilliant for all these people that want to create. Yeah, there's increasing interest in it. So it's mainly an issue, Roland, of people breaking the old habits. And yeah. so the old habits are so ingrained, you have to learn new habits. Yeah. And you, I know you like to talk, Roland, about ad- 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 adaptation. So we need adaptation from everybody. We need adaptation from investors to think about future risk, not historical risk. We need uh, advisors to adapt and listen to their clients who want this and not try and talk about them. We need adaptation from fund managers. And so you'll see some new funds coming out in the next 6, 12 months, some of whom we're working with that are being more sustainable or focusing on sustainable development goals. Um, and each of us just needs to adapt and be prepared for the world that uh, we're going to live in, which is going to be tougher unless we all act together. And I think you said that before, that nature is like a perfect model. Nature is highly adaptive. Okay, it's highly vibrant and dynamic. It never wastes anything. Everything is a constant cycle of nature. And by emulating nature and this biophilic design, you know, cradle-to-cradle product design, stuff like that, this is where we have to go to. There is no waste in the future system because we cannot live on this planet wasting anything anymore. And we need to think of uh, a common enemy. And the common enemy is uh-huh. – so there's uh, two types of red ants in the Iberian Peninsula in Spain. Hmm. And they are historic enemies. They fight each other all the time until – There's a flood. And when there's a flood, these two arch enemies link together to create a raft. And you can YouTube this and see this. And these ants link together to float for hours or days to survive. And then when the floods go away, they go back to fighting again. Are you serious? So that is a true nature example. (laughs) And it's also a true sort of human nature example as well. So, you know, uh, we share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. There's lots to learn if you watch Jane Goodall and uh, see how um, societies cooperate or collaborate or don't. So it's up to us. We, you know, we are the ones we uh, are waiting for. We need to act today. We need to transform. So I personally am shifting to a plant-based diet five days out of seven. So Uh, am I, actually. And even more than that, probably. But, uh, that's exactly what's been happening in my life. I use bike share. You know, I'm uh, uh, I'm in two softball leagues. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, that's I get to great. use the senior citizen bat, which people always want to check my ID for. So being 50 and over now, uh, which of course is a senior citizen of millennials. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's up to us. We need to change. Uh, we need to work for places that are helping solve problems. We need to buy things that are in line with the future, and we need to position our portfolio and 401ks, including our college endowments and our foundations for the future. All the information is available today. The CEO of Johnson Controls, when I was researching the HIP book, this popped up. I couldn't believe it. The CEO of Johnson Controls uh, made a statement in their annual report. They make energy efficiency products and software. They said, if all our customers used all our product, U.S. energy demand in buildings would go down 25%. 
just by using all the products in the Johnson Controls catalog. So obviously that serves Johnson Controls, but it also serves us. Right. Like we, those are easy ways to generate human impact and profit at the same time. Right. Uh, and higher impact portfolios of net positive investments that are good for the world, good for people, planet, and trust can also be good for your financial security and stability over time. So what's – if I mean, we have a couple minutes left here. I just wanted to top off with – because if there's one wish you had beside what you just said, which is really important for everybody listening to kind of invoke it in their own life because it matters. The next few years do matter tremendously. Um, and you're going to see more and more rebellion, more and more harm, actually, from collateral damage of this. But if you had to take one wish, um, and I'm going to go look at BlackRock, okay? Larry Fink, right? Wouldn't he, who cares, who writes about this stuff, but why is there nothing happening there on a global basis? They have the resource and the, and the wherewithal to pull off something pretty major. Why don't they adopt this whole program? Well, BlackRock is adopting uh, Impact and ESG. Um, they, you know, when you look at them as a company, they're not transparent as right. they could be. Right. So they do need to correct that. But they have a group of about 40 people that go and engage CEOs, CFOs, board members. And BlackRock, and they'll say this out loud, we prefer to have private, BlackRock prefers to have private conversations and make those changes happen behind the scenes rather than be um, uh, in the uh, in the spotlight. So they could choose to shift to that. They could be even more prominent. They've started to vote more with some of the shareholder votes to have disclosure of climate risk reporting at ExxonMobil um, and to vote for minimum wage. But there there can be more. So the good news is, uh, Roland, that there's um, several hundred financial institutions who've signed up for this principles of responsible investing, um, but not all of their assets are invested responsibly. Right. So so if we could just get the people who've committed to it to actually do it, and BlockRock is one of those that are leading. You mentioned college endowments before. Pitzer College, um, uh, Pitzer College was actually one that uh, has shifted to a fossil fuel equity portfolio, um, and BlockRock is the fund manager for that. And uh, they were the only fund manager that signed up for the RFP to do that. So the problem is we don't have competition yet <laughs> for the existing demand to to go and do that. So that's that's the shift that we need. So if we could get um, everybody to incrementally um, live, you know, act in the behavior that we want for a society, and we do it with how where we work, how we spend, how we shop, and we vote for people who do the same, then we can get there faster. But we're gonna, you know, we're gonna have to make uh, innovative improvements. We're gonna have to respect people as an asset. We're gonna have to have end-to-end -end systems. Um, and we need to be trustworthy and respectful of each other. So. Okay, well, unfortunately, we're out of time, Paul. And I've been speaking this hour with Paul Harmon, hip investor. He has been the CEO and founder of this for a long time and really making the change with investors, making them shift over to their assets that actually put it to work in the right places, which we really care about. If you want to learn more about his work, go to hipinvestor.com. Just ahead, I'll be speaking with Dave Chen, founder and principal and chairman of Equilibrium Capital Investment Firm, focused on sustainably driven real asset investment opportunities in real estate, agriculture, water, waste, and energy. I'm Roland Vanner, and you listen to Sirius, uh, Sirius XM, Bay Area Ventures. By Wharton School, Series 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.